Hello friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to another episode of Tea and Tropes. I can't believe it is so close to Christmas. We're already halfway through the month of December and that means we're halfway through Nightweaver and what a crazy ride it's been so far. I am so excited for this episode and for all the things to come. I've got a lot on my calendar in the upcoming months. As a lot of you guys know, I have an Etsy shop and I travel the country going to different comic conventions around. My next one coming up is going to be Albuquerque. Um, after that, I just finalized my spot for Emerald City up in Seattle. And I was looking at the guest list today and I found out that there's some top notch authors that have already been announced and they haven't even finished making their announcements yet. But the first four that they have is Cassandra Clare, Rebecca Yaros, Marissa Meyer, and Veronica Roth. And I have multiple (laughs) of each of these authors' books in my library. They are fantastic. I've met Marissa Meyer once before at Phoenix Comic Con, and she is just the sweetest. But I'm going to have to get a second book signed by her. So I'm really excited for that. But if you guys are at any of the conventions I'm at, please feel free to stop by, say hi, and I would love to meet you guys in person, definitely. So don't feel shy. I am the nicest person you're ever going to meet. Unless, you know, I'm sticking up for somebody that I'm really mean. But I'm nice to all of you guys because you all are my friends and I love and appreciate all of you. So please, if you see me, say hi. But we have a lot to talk about today, so let's get started. week is inspired by Good Omens, and I've mentioned on here before, but I am a huge Neil Gaiman fan. Um, so the tea that I found today is inspired by Crowley, and it is a apple cinnamon black tea, which is just perfect for his character. If you've seen the show or read the books, you know that this is a perfect choice for Crowley, but it is so good. It is by Tabletop Teas, and I will put the link in the description. But definitely go check them out. They have a lot more fandom inspired. They have D&D inspired, Critical Role, etc. Really fun stuff. And it's amazing. So give them a check out. And give them a check out. Go check them out. And let me know what you guys think. So where we last left off in Nightweaver was Violet had just gotten into the fountain. She retrieved the collar from the decapitated heads. And... There was something going on with some eyes, and she was knocked out by Will, and that's where we ended on this huge cliffhanger. So, jumping right into chapter 11, Violet wakes up to find herself in her own bed. She's changed. She has vague memories of Will washing her off in a lake, and the pixie's changing her clothes while Will is a gentleman and doesn't look, but... She wakes to her little brother, Albert, crying that he had a nightmare and he saw Owen. 
And his parents were consoling him, saying it was just a dream, go back to sleep, blah, blah, blah. You know how parents do. And this isn't the first time that someone has seen Owen in their dreams. If you remember, Violet saw him in a few dreams when she was passed out when they had first gotten um, kidnapped or taken off of their ship at the very beginning. She had visions or dreams about Owen and questioned whether he was still alive. So having another sibling have dreams, it's really making me question if Owen is still alive. But because of the little brother having these nightmares, her father says it's time to have the funeral and put him to rest officially. So they go outside. Um, they have a funeral. But what kind of stuck out stuck out to me? Stuck out. <laughs> Sorry, I can't talk today. What really stuck out to me was that there was a raven um, present at the funeral. I know... In the general sense, ravens are used as messengers. Now, I don't know if Rebecca's doing that here, but I do know that anytime you see a raven, it's usually a form of message. So now I'm curious what that message might be. But we do get information that Violet shares about how Will had always wanted to be a bird. And she's saying, you know, there's a bird here at the funeral. Maybe he finally got his wish and he's a bird now. And I thought that was really, really sweet. Violet also explains how normally they would fire their guns into the air for each year that the person was alive on the earth. But they can't fire their guns because they don't have any. But is it because they don't have any or is it because he's not dead? Rebecca, again, babe, I know you're here. He's not dead, is he? I swear, I swear he's not. Mate, look, I might be overreacting, to be fair. I might still be stuck on fourth wing <laughs> spoilers, but there's he's not dead, right? I don't, we're, we're going to find out. I don't think so, though. After the funeral, Will and Violet have a conversation where he shares more information about the Guild of Shadows and their queen, I pronounce her name Marana, but I'm curious if you guys pronounce it as Marina um, or if there's any other way that I'm not even thinking of. So let me know how you guys are pronouncing it, but I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. I might even switch halfway through. Who knows? Don't come at me if you hear me say different things. But we get more information about the Guild of the Underlings, and Will tells her that if she still wants help hunting the silk to meet him in the stables that night. In chapter 12, she does just that. She goes out to the stables. But on her way there, she takes a peek into her siblings' rooms, and she sees a shadow standing over her little sister. And as the shadow sees her, it, like, flees out the window and, like, just jumps out the window. And I'm just going to pause for a second here and just say that this description of what Violet sees when she looks out the window is stunning. This is A++ writing. It was absolutely beautiful, so kudos. But another thing that stood out to me while we're on the subject, when she's looking out the window, there's another raven. And at this point, I'm associating ravens with Owen. So, hey, Owen's flying around outside as a raven. That's my prediction. She meets up with Will, and they go to the conservatory, 
And they talk about the story, the old story about the wolf in sheep's clothing. And this instantly prompted me to think about, okay, who is the wolf in sheep's clothing here? Who is not as they seem? And obviously at this point, they're searching for somebody that supposedly is possessed by the silk, right? I think it's deeper than that. I don't think it's just on the surface wolf in sheep's clothing. I think it's a big twist wolf in sheep's clothing. So let me know who you guys think the silk is possessing. I think there's a lot more here than what we are given. It's here that we learn that shifters will change humans into shifters by biting them. Kind of like a vampire. And if you guys remember, Violet in the dreams where Owen was alive, wink, wink, Violet had visuals of bite marks on her. Was it a dream or was it not a dream? Because I think she didn't know that information before. So why would she be having dreams of bite marks when she doesn't know that that's even a thing that the shadows do, that that the shifters do in the first place? It's too coincidental for her own imagination to just make up this piece of information if it didn't actually happen or mean something to her. It's at this point that Violet admits to herself that her parents know more than they're telling her. And I am literally screaming when I read this. I'm like, yes, obviously, go talk to your parents, call them out. But alas, I know, I know that's not going to happen. The point that I'm trying to make, though, is that she is slowly coming to the same realizations. Will explains to her that if she were bit by the shifter, she would have changed already. But what if she's like her curse that's on her? What if that's stopping her from changing? What if they did try to change her and she's immune somehow because of her curse? Like her curse means something. It it wasn't mentioned on like the first page for no reason. There's a reason here. I just don't know what it is yet. And then he basically tells her that there's nothing they can really do at this point. So they just have to wait for the shifter to show up again. Which, I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) I feel like it's a little counterproductive to hunting. You don't wait for the animal to come to you. You go track the animal. So, there's a disconnect here between hunting the silk and, or the shifter, and waiting it for, and waiting for it to come to you. I don't know. I I don't really like Will in this moment. I feel like he's hiding things. I feel like he's not sticking to their agreement of he's going to help her hunt the silk because they're not hunting. They're just sitting and waiting. And especially with it standing over her siblings and she knows that the guild might be killing her family just to get to her. I feel like just standing around waiting is not proactive in any way. In chapter 13, Violet is tired and jumpy um, from not sleeping very well the night before. So her dad gives her the day off and she goes back to her room where the knapsack that disappeared the night of the decapitations 
has reappeared. And inside are two sets of eyeballs. Yummy. Um, so she takes the knapsack and she goes to look for Will. As she's going on the side of the house that she's not supposed to be in, she, she finds him and immediately describes him as a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. <laughs> she literally describes him as a wolf in sheep's clothing. So again, my don't trust Will Bells are ringing, okay? But he sees her, takes her through the servant passages that are, like, inside the walls, um, and takes her into the library. And if there's anything I know about stories with old houses that have servant passages, it's that there are secrets in this house. This house is full of them. Those walls are full of them. People could be hiding in the walls and you'd never have any idea. It's terrifying and intriguing and so much fun. And I'm super excited to see where that goes. But they get into the library, right? And Will tells her that there's no breach in the wards. So if the silk or the gore or anything else got into the house, someone in his family had to have let him in or let them in that it whatever you want to call these creatures, somebody in his family had to let it in. She gives him the knapsack with the eyeballs. Um, he says he's going to take care of it, whatever that means. And she tells him that her brother woke up from a nightmare. And oh my gosh, what he says blew my mind. He says that it's impossible to have nightmares inside the house because there is a ward preventing nightmares. They set it up after Henry was retrieved from the cannibal ship and he wasn't able to sleep because of the nightmares. So his uncle came and set up the protections. So nobody should be able to have nightmares in this house. He really brushes it off like, oh, well, maybe the wards are failing because it's been so long since my uncle's been here. No, no, that is bullshit. It wasn't a dream. Albert, I believe, really did see Owen because Owen's not freaking dead yet, okay? Owen's not dead. <laughs> I'm literally going to die on this hill. I will, I swear. Even if we get to this end of the, if, like, we're going to get all the way to the end of the story we're going to wait for book two, book three, book seven. I don't care how long it takes. Owen is not dead, guys. Violet asks Will why he kept her from her family for two weeks while they were on the ship. And he goes through this explanation where he's comparing her to Henry and how he felt he had to protect her and yada, yada. That's not the important part. I mean, maybe it is to some of you. It's not to me. The important part to me here is that he's standing in front of the fireplace while he's telling her this. And she describes him in a way that says, with the flames behind him, making him look like a dark figure, he looks like a silk. <laughs> what a weird thing to say, Violet, unless you don't trust him. I know he's giving off these gentlemanly vibes. 
But then he proceeds to explain how his special gift is persuasion. I don't like that. (laughs) I don't like people that can force people to do things. Maybe that's just a personal thing for me. But this is rubbing me the wrong way as far as a character goes. We find out that Will thinks there was magic on the bracelets. We also find out that Captain Shade is his informant. And it's at this point that Violet goes to leave because Lord Castor comes in. Violet goes to leave and has this debilitating pain in her shoulder. And I'm sorry, listeners, where were the bite marks in Violet's dream? Oh, I'm sorry. They were on her freaking shoulder. Okay. This isn't, I feel like I'm going crazy. (laughs) I really feel like I'm going crazy here. I am having the worst trust issues (laughs) of my life. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anything. I don't know what's real. And we're only halfway through. I feel like I might be reading too much into everything. But I am having the worst trust issues with everybody. I don't know if I like Will. I don't know if I like Henry. I kind of like Henry. I don't know if I like Captain Shade. Um, I, I don't even trust Violet's parents at this point. I think Jack's okay. He hasn't done anything that's, you know, thrown me off yet. But what the heck? Why Why am I feeling like this? Are you guys reciprocating this or am I alone in my craziness here? She gets back to her room and is going to sleep. As she's falling asleep, she sees the red eyes looking at her again through the vent And she says this time she doesn't feel fear. She feels pity and thinks that the creature is just as alone as she is. And again, I feel like it might be Owen. Did Owen get turned into a shifter? And that's why he's like, okay, because we found out, I'm backtracking a little, but we found out that shifters, whoever they are possessing, they are still in their bodies with the shifter. So if Owen is strong enough to fight the shifter to an extent, would he be able to stop the shifter from killing his own family? I feel like that might be something that that could, that it's in the possibilities. But I just thought it was really interesting that she's feeling pity towards this creature now. When she wakes up, she goes outside for fresh air, and guess what? There's another freaking raven, okay? Just throwing that out there. But she runs into her mom, and she asks her mom, she says, Hey, Will thinks that there was magic on the bracelets. Do you know anything about this? And her mom says, Of course not. Magic is outlawed. Magic is prohibited. Blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. That sounds like an answer you would give. If you're trying not to get caught, putting magic on shit. So her mom's a liar. (laughs) Chapter 14 didn't really throw me as much as the other ones did. I feel like I'm giving like a super crazy show today. But 
chapter 14, um, we learn about the blood letters who get their power from water, which means that even though Violet for her entire life thought that they were safe at sea because the night weavers weren't going out to sea, that was wrong. There are night weavers that can go out to sea and are actually stronger in the sea. So that's just more of her life that was an absolute lie. Will explains why he joined the League of the Seven and that wolves can expel silks out of their hosts. He also makes a comment that love is more powerful than fear. And it's in this moment where he, I mean, before this moment, where he asks Violet what she wants, and she says that she wants power. She wants to be powerful. And I'm going to talk about that soon, so just keep that in mind. But in Chapter 15, we jump ahead in time a little bit. We go a month in the future, and Margaret pulls Violet aside and shows her a bloody knife with fur on it that she found under Annie's bed. She goes to meet up with Will to tell him about the knife, and he's acting super distant and kind of cold, and then tells her that he'll be leaving tomorrow to go on a trip with the prince um, on a mission. He says that he told his uncle that they're trying to hunt the silk and that the uncle will help Violet. And she decides she's not going to tell him about the knife. And it's also in this moment where she again describes him as a dark figure, which super interesting. In chapter 16, Violet is watching him leave from the window and Margaret admits that she knows that Violet's been sneaking out with him. After Will leaves, she goes for a horse riding lesson, takes the horse out for a walk, and runs into Will's uncle, who asks her pretty plainly about how her hunt is going for the silk. He tells her that Elegy and Iron can kill the silk, and so he gives her a flintlock um, to protect herself with. And one of my favorite, I guess you could call it a trope, in writing is what I call the law of the gun. And it's very popular in stage production as well. You know, I was a drama kid. But essentially what it is is that if a gun appears on screen or on page, it is going to go off before the end. It's just saying that Everything is described for a specific reason. There's no point in showing off a gun in a story or giving it to a main character if it's not going to be used. But it also works um, pretty (laughs) specifically to a gun itself. If there's a gun in the scene, it will be used before the end of the book or the play or the movie, whatever. This has never once failed me. I have never seen a gun in a movie that did not go off at some crucial moment. She kind of realizes that Will was not super forthcoming with all of his information to her, and his uncle suspects that he wasn't sharing all the information because if she had all the information, he wouldn't need her. him. She wouldn't need him. I don't know what I said. She would not need him if she knew everything. So he's kind of withholding information from her so that he feels useful. I don't like that either. Um, but 
I don't know. Maybe he's just lonely. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. As she's about to leave and head back to the manor, she sees Owen again, like in the fog in the forest, and he disappears. At the same time that there's a voice saying, together we will bring kings and queens to their knees. You only need to ask. The last time someone told Violet she had to ask for help was when Will was telling her, if you want help hunting the silk, just ask me for it. So I just, I'm making this small little connection here. But I think that this sentence or what whatever they're saying to her right now is kind of in line with what she wants. She admitted that she wanted power. This seems like a pretty powerful deal to make. Might be a little tempting for her. In chapter 17, the casters are having a dinner party. And after dinner, while she's walking around, she gets pulled into a closet with Henry. And Henry is hiding from his betrothed, who is a nightmare of a woman, apparently. And there's a moment here where I kind of feel for Henry because he makes a comment about he doesn't want to marry her. And if he did marry who he wanted to, like, he wouldn't be able to. If he even if he had admitted who he wants to be with, and that's because he wants to be with a human, and that is against the king's laws, right? Before they head out of the closet, they overhear Lord Castor talking to one of his dinner guests about a secret weapon, and naturally they want to know more. So they follow them all the way to the conservatory, and this is where she overhears that. They want her and her family to join the order, whatever that is. Um, And at that moment, wolves come up behind them, growling and snarling. In chapter 18, Will's mother comes out and tells the wolves that will be all, which I find hilarious because we know that Will mainly takes after his mom. So she has the same sort of powers of, like, nature and where he can, like, talk to the wolves and the insects and um, the flowers. But I found this scene hilarious because that means the way that she's talking to the wolves is, like, that'll be all. The wolves are, like, working for her. And I really want to know more about this dynamic. She invites Violet and Henry into the conservatory, says, hey, you might as well come in at this point. You already are listening. Um, So when Violet goes in, a whole bunch of different mythological creatures enter. Lady Isabel explains that humans, myths, and night weavers have been working together to create what is essentially a rebellion called the Order of Hilt, Hilt, Hiltgard? Hiltgard. Sorry, I had to check my notes. I almost put an extra N in there somewhere. There's not even an N to begin with. I was adding an N. I don't know why. Hildegard. <laughs> um, they find out that the order, not not that, not, sorry, not the order, the Guild of Shadows. So there's the Order of Hildegard and the Guild of Shadows. The Guild of Shadows are the underlings. Those are the bad guys. The Guild of Shadows are offering freedom from the Night Weavers to anybody that they can recruit, which seems like a pretty good deal. Look, I don't know. (laughs) 
all of the politics in this world. But when Violet wants freedom more than anything, it's just freedom and safety and power. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a bad option. What is a bad option, though, is that the king is suspected of harvesting manon from humans it's not explicitly said but that's the idea that's what everyone's thinking i'm just the one saying it. and it's at that that violet announces she wants to join the order and be part of the fight but she doesn't want her family to be involved she wants them to remain safe and stay there in chapter 19 tensions seem to be a little high and violet gets into a fight with her sister margaret as she, you know, runs off, she runs into Henry, and we find out that she's been training with the Uncle Killian, but Henry gives her a letter from Will. She refuses to read it and gives it back and starts to walk away. With the letter was the flower, and if you remember, Will had been using flowers and, like, teaching Violet different, like, messages that each flower means and this got me thinking, could the rebellion use flowers as a form of like secret communications? I don't know. Just a thought. I'm like, could they, could they make like a secret code based on flowers? Could they send bouquets of flowers to each other and just completely <laughs> spread secret messages that way? I don't know. <laughs> but Henry asks her to go to the Reckoning Day ball with him because he's trying to avoid his betrothed Trudy. Violet says no, but Henry convinces her by saying that, one, Will's going to be there. Two, the prince is going to be there. Three, Captain Shade is rumored to come to try to kill the prince. And four, the order wants her and him to keep an eye out and keep an eye on the prince and make sure that the prince doesn't die because they need him. In chapter 20, I feel like this was a bit, a big, 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 big part. We find out that the Red Island is real. The Red Island is rumored to house the air, the human air of the Hill Guard Line. And according to the legends, the human will be on the throne again. We get more of the backstory of the underling queen, Morana, Morena. I, I, don't, I don't know how I want to pronounce her name, um, but we get more of her backstory. And we find out that her nickname was Lightbringer, which is the name or was the name of the Oberon family ship. I don't know what I think of that yet. I'm going to think about that over the next week. Hopefully I have... Some more thoughts when I come back, but just something to keep in mind. Theorize on that. Killian also gives Violet daggers made of Legion um, iron as well, and those daggers are able to banish his silk also. In chapter 21, Vi sorry, Violet, Margaret, and Jack go into town to buy a dress for the ball. On the way back to the manor, they run into a crowd that is watching a family hang and get marked as pirates. And who is doing this? Why? It's Percy. I was wondering when we were going to see him again because last time we left, he was just kind of a dick and I knew he was going to be a problem. But he 
spies them in the crowd, drags them up on stage, and brands Margaret and Violet with a P for pirate. As he's pulling Violet's arm after branding her, he sees the bracelet and he goes, hmm, what's this? And Violet thinks in her head, she goes, don't touch it or I'll make you blind. And at this exact moment, his eyes start bleeding. And that's obviously not a coincidence. Whether it was her who did the magic or if it was her curse or something completely different altogether, I'm not sure yet. But it's definitely not a coincidence. They escape in the chaos of his bleeding eyes and the baker, Mrs. Carroll, takes them back to the manor. In chapter 22, this is the last chapter we're covering today, Violet makes a comment to herself, not out loud. I, I say make a, makes a comment because I feel like she's, like, talking to me. Um, she makes a comment about how she's proud to have the brand. She's a pirate. Everybody can see it, and she's not ashamed of that she's not having to hide it or pretend like she's not anymore which I thought was pretty strong I really liked that Henry and Violet head back into town with Lord Castor to make an example of Percy for his actions for branding people in the street hanging people in the street and they're gonna go make an example of him they track him to an inn in town where Violet describes when she sees, like, a dying man and she, like, you know, touches him. She feels power coursing through her. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. This, I think, is, like, the second or third time. that It was in the fountain she felt it at one point. And then I think there was one more before that. But I feel like I'm making it up now because I don't remember the exact moment. But regardless, this is not the first time that this has happened. So she's saying that she's feeling power. Which, super interesting use of words there. But they find him up on the upper floors where he has a girl hostage. And Percy is pretty much just tormenting Henry and Violet. He gives Henry a box that has Dorothy's finger in it. Um, Dorothy is, I don't think I mentioned, but Dorothy is the... um, woman that Henry is in love with, the human woman. Um, And he throws the girl that he has hostage out the window. Violet attacks him at this point and is just kind of beating the crap out of him. And at this point, we already know that he's possessed by the silk and that he's part of the Guild of Shadows. He says something about Owen, and so we know that he is the silk specifically that killed Owen. But then he says something that just stops Violet in her tracks. He says, Owen sends his regards. Again, Owen's not dead, y'all. He's not dead, I swear. Before she can finish beating him to death or get any more information about what he means by Owen sends his regards. Henry pulls her out because he accidentally started a fire on the building and the building is literally collapsing. So he pulls her out of the building and they let it burn. 
Before they leave, though, they find the body of the woman that was thrown out, of the girl, sorry, that was thrown out of the window, and on top of her body is a playing card. Violet says that it was Owen's playing card and that the silk is toying with her, trying to convince her that Owen is alive. Because he freaking is, though, you guys. (laughs) That's all that we're covering in the story today. And I feel like this is probably the most, like, unhinged episode I've ever done (laughs) so far. I feel like I'm going crazy, but I love every minute of it. Um, I don't know. I... I hope I'm not too far off base because I'm going to feel ridiculous if I am. Like, if I am just completely wrong in all of this, I'm going to go crazy. (laughs) But we're going to pick it up next week when we do chapters 23 through 32. And don't forget to get your questions in for RM Gray herself where she's going to tell us Oh, hopefully anything we want to know that's not spoiler for book two, but um, send in your questions so we can ask them on air on January 5th and don't go anywhere because right now we are meeting with Sarah Zim to talk about her debut novel, Every Dark Shadow. And I am so excited to talk to you today. I've been going through like your Instagram feed and I love like all of your meme videos that you do. They're hilarious. Oh my god thank you it is um it's a lot of fun <laughs> all right sarah um do we want to start and just kind of like tell us a little bit about you and how you got into writing oh absolutely that sounds great um well i am a wisconsin born writer i've um, been here my whole life and i came from the world of journalism so i went to college at oshkosh in our our state here for journalism and was a reporter for a while and got into brand marketing from there and all the while was sort of nurturing this love of fiction and obsessively reading and writing things I never finished and finally a handful of years ago decided to take it more seriously and taught myself like actually how to finish a book, how to write a book um, and started to build a community of, of other writers just to support one another and finished that book and then decided I was going to keep writing, write another book. And um, the second book is the one I ended up publishing. So Wonderful. And that one is your new release that you just had come out in what, August, right? It did on August 29th. Yes. Every Dark Shadow. Yep. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So Every Dark Shadow is a YA adult crossover fantasy of the epic variety, there's a lot of world building um, that is set across parallel versions of New York in the late 1800s. And we have this fiery, bookish young woman named Ophelia who has been spelled to forget these lives that she's living in the mortal world, meant to protect her from a king in the world she's really from, um, who is, is hunting her for reasons unknown. But she is being guarded in time Uh, in the mortal world with three different men who have different ideas of how to keep her safe. And um, that's, that's their whole sort of reason for being with her. And long story short, that doesn't go to plan. And she's thrust between worlds, you know, amid 
growing rebellion back home in search of her memories and her magic to try to, um, to really make some strides in ending this oppressive monarchy. What tropes can we expect in this? Oh my gosh. Well, there's a lot. Um, hidden memories, <laughs> for sure. Uh, secret identities. Um, you've got like, you know, for people who like a little romance, I, I like slow burn. I am all about all of the tension. Um, so there's a lot of that in book one and no spice until book two. Um, we've got multiple love interests, but with a spin on that, it's, I wanted it to be intentional and not just for the sake of conflict. Um, so there's multiple love interests. There's shadow magic. There's a mad king. Um, a whole lot of other things. It's a very dark, gritty world, but there are these moments of sweetness and beauty interlaced with that. And um, if you're somebody who likes um, V. Schwab vibes, The Darkest Shade of Magic, or you like Lee Bardugo, I think I think that people would like this book. When you were telling me like about the story, I was getting a lot of V. Schwab for sure. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love her so much. She's one of those authors where I, when I sit down to do a writing session, I have her books close just for like moral support. And it sounds so silly, but it's, <laughs> it's just like this sort of un, like subconscious um, inspiration, like having the book close as a reminder of um her narrative voice is very compelling. It's very different. She tends to write in a lot of like different points of view, and they are all interlaced into the story in such an intentional way. And I think the way she writes is very similar to the way I my brain works and how I write. So just having her book like sit next to me as I write sometimes is is just really good motivation. She's an inspiration. She had posted a video like a couple weeks ago about how. When she first started writing, people were telling her that her books, like, weren't mainstream enough. They were too weird. Mm -hmm. And then look at her now. Like, she's on a full tour right now. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. I love her story. It's so authentic. It's so real. And I love how she, I mean, if you read her book, Dedication, she talks all the time about, like, being so surprised herself that her, she calls them like weird little books have found their community, but it's just such a great reminder. Like we're not, we're as writers, not looking to write a book for everyone. Like you're right. You write for your weird little community and you know, it, it will find it's, it'll find its people. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. So you said you're working on book two then. I am. Yes. Yeah, how many are we expecting in the series? The book, it's so it's planned as a duology with um, the door open for novellas. I have a novella that bridges book one and book two, but also dives back into the past from um, the villain's point of view, making of a making of the villain, if you will. And so Ophelia's story is planned as as two books, and then I, I'm already getting off, you know, ideas for not spinoffs, but I guess just like other potential series that would be in the same world from focus on different characters. I love that. Yeah, that's very Bardugo too. That's so true. <laughs> oh my gosh, see, it's like company you keep. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing the inspiration come. I love it. I love it. Mm -hmm. What other inspiration do you get that um, helped you write Every Dark Shadow? I tend to get these weird little like dreams and 
it's like between five and six in the morning, I've started to have to keep notebooks by the bed because it's like that between the wake and dream state where you're, you're just so relaxed and ideas just come. They're like this amalgamation of things you've read or watched in the last few days. And that's how Every Dark Shadow started was this really specific scene of um, like a man from a different place in time reaching out from the shadows of this alley to stop a girl from going toward this this building that he knew was going to burn and I was like well how did he know that and he's like you don't belong here and I'm like oh what is happening here so I tend to get a lot of inspiration from like the nether where it just comes like in dreams uh from just little things that you absorb throughout the day um but I also do a lot of reading in genre and there's little bits and pieces of stories I've read where I'm like oh but what if this would have happened or this character reminds me of that or you know just little pieces that you sort of take with you as you go and you have no idea that five years later they're going to become anything it's just that's the great thing about stories I think is they just they percolate forever they live forever and nothing is ever wasted like no idea no notes scrawled on a post-it that you still saved like from three years ago it's it all comes back around I can't even tell you how many journals I have full of like half thought out ideas that I just hold on to. I'm like, I can't get rid of these. They're going to mean something someday. Yes. And like, maybe you'll combine more than one of them and it'll become its own thing. And for sure. Definitely. Have you even like growing up, I know you said you got into journalism, but did you know that you wanted to write fantasy? I don't think I knew specifically it was fantasy when I was younger. I think I just knew I had this like desperate need to tell stories and whether it was you know when I was younger writing these more YA contemporary romance or I think I even tried my hand at like a thriller one time and horror um yeah and I think as I matured in my reading as I got older and and was really starting to hone in on what I enjoyed then it it sort of grew from there I just kept finding the stories that I was coming up with all had some sort of magical element, more some speculative thread. And yeah, there's just something about being able to, in fantasy, explore certain themes that feel really complicated to explore, like in contemporary. So there's just a little bit more freedom and um, creativity, but also to explore some themes that are can be uncomfortable in contemporary. Yeah, the rules don't mean as much, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you have a lot more, like you said, freedom. Like, you you really could do whatever you want, especially in, like, a fantasy setting. There are no rules for fantasy, and I love that. Or you make the rules, and then you have to dig yourself out of them because you're like, it has, yeah. to, make some, it has to make sense. <laughs> this is a hard block for my characters right now. <laughs> that is the hard part about writing book two is you've already – established a lot of the framework and the rules and world building in book one and you're like okay I have all these levers and I have all these parameters now what do I do that's such a wonderful insight because I never really thought of it like that and now that you say it I'm like yeah obviously that makes so much sense but like you when you're writing the first book you're you're not thinking like how is this going to directly affect plans for book two yeah. But oh man, I admire writers who can plot out two books at once. I don't think I knew for sure this was going to be a duology when I started book one. I knew that I wanted the, like the magic system 
for example, to be sustainable and not something that it's like so difficult to maintain or grow. But yeah, I admire writers who are patient and they say, I'm going to literally finish both books before I publish the first one so that it's a little easier on myself. I could never. I'm so excited for like, even just doing the podcast, I have all these authors that I'm talking to. I'm like, I just really want to get all of you guys out like immediately. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I need to wait. I need to pay some one, one per week. And I, I could never plot out two books before pulling the trigger on any of them. <laughs> you know, I, that was like a barrier. I think, I don't know how, how it's been for you in your personal writing, but book one, I wrote in eight months. The novella I wrote, like when I really sat down to focus, it took me about a month to get the novella written. And book two, I mean, I started working on it in the spring and kind of set it aside to do other things and launch book one and picked it back up in the summer. And it just, you know, I mean, I probably rewrote the first section like 20 times and there's so much pressure with book two and there's so much you have to like now get yourself out of that you got characters into in book one and you're like okay this is now a problem for my future self <laughs> it's now um so book two is really hard I feel like writing sequels and it's starting to feel like it's all coming together now but it's such a process so are you a pantser then or did you try to be a plotter like what was the story there yeah I I think I always try to have the main beats um or like the main like thinking about story structure, if you use Save the Cat, like having your, right. knowing your call to adventure and your break into act two and um, midpoint and all that, those like really the bones of the story, having most of those solidified, at least, at least like through the first 75% of the book, I like to know where it's going. Um, and then as I start to go and set myself up for like the next couple of weeks of writing, I'll outline scene, like the next few scenes more specifically. Um, but I didn't outline to the extent of having both books outlined. So I like to leave a little room for pantsing and letting the story breathe where it needs to and letting the characters surprise me because that keeps it fun and interesting when you're writing a series. Absolutely. I love when characters just kind of take over and you're just writing down what they're doing. <laughs> you're, you don't have control at that point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's the best. Like how many times you're in the shower and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, <laughs> you jump out and you're like <laughs> dripping wet and trying to like capture the aha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the best. Do you have any like weird rituals or processes that get you into writing or that you have to have while you're writing? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't have to like have my desk a certain way or like have you know like I said B. Schwab's book I don't have to have it with me everywhere I go um but I am a mood I'm definitely a mood writer just like I'm, I'm a mood reader so I can't write in certain rooms when it's a certain scene like if it's a really dark emotional scene I have to write at night and I have to write like sitting on the floor on my um my wool rug and just feeling very grounded with a candle and everything's focused and just kind of like embodying the feeling um, like a, a lot of writers will say that they write from like a detached third, kind of a third point of view, but I've always found that really hard for me to do. Like I don't write as an observer. I tend to write more empathetically, like if not in their head, like on their shoulder, 
and in it with them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the most like ritualistic thing is just getting my head in the headspace. And part of that is like going back and looking at, okay, what was the last scene that was in their point of view? How are they feeling? So like really outlining and setting up the scene before I start writing the words. And I try, I try to find the emotionality and the opening image of every scene by, by really setting the mood and getting in the headspace. And your book is dual POV, correct? Multiple point of views. So I multiple. Yeah, I have. And I'm like, what did I do? Um, it was really fun. It was a lot of threads. Um, so I have Ophelia as like the main protagonist. It's her story, really. And we have three male characters who also have points of view, main points of view. And then I have some secondary characters where it was just really fun to get that outside perspective on something we couldn't have gotten in the four main points of view so there's some secondary points of view as well um just a couple of those and then there's a couple of the villain points of view so it's it's a lot I love villain POVs it's fantastic love it Mm -hmm. did you find that it was difficult to write in a male POV as a female yourself no and I don't know what this says about me um, and about female empowerment in general. Um, but I feel like I have to, the hardest points of view for me to write in our women's point of view. And I think it says something about society that I feel like more free to write as in a male point of view. But um, it might also be just the nature of the males that are in the cast too. Like they're all so clear in my head and their voices are so unique and their motivations and their wants are just, they've always been so, so clear to me. Um, Ophelia, on the other hand, when I wrote her, like she doesn't have all of her, all of her mind and doesn't know herself when we start the book. And I wanted that experience for the reader to feel very authentic. So I intentionally got to know her as, as I was writing the book versus doing more character sketches up front with her. Um, and so finding her voice and the things that she knows and who she really is at her core was it's really tricky at first. That's really fascinating. I love that. I have never written that way before. She's a character. I've seen memory loss tropes, but this is um this isn't like she was in an accident and she lost her memory. Um, this was she's living different lives and which parts of these lives are truly her. So that was just something different and new to wrap wrap my head around and figuring out how to create these commonalities between the lives she lives for the reader to pick up on. So do you put a lot of like hints in to like, once the reader figures out at the end, can they look back and be like, Oh my gosh, I, I saw that coming. I hope so. And to be fair, we start, we do get a sense of her. Like once she realizes what's going on, it doesn't take the whole book for her to realize she's been living like, these lies, so to speak. Um, but it does take quite a bit of the story for her to get everything back. So that launches us into book two. Um, so, but there are clues as to who she is at her core in each of the times she has with the different, different guys. Do you have a favorite character? Oh my gosh. Um, it's like asking if you have a favorite child. I know. <laughs> right. Usually people will be like, yeah, actually I do. But I have an only son, so I don't have to pick between, <laughs> have to pick between my kids. Um, I have points of view that 
I think are just really fun to write in. Elkin, for example, his voice is just, he's very abrasive and physical and he's a smuggler. And so he's a little bit dirty, a little bit um, crass sometimes. And he's, yeah, he's just really, he's not afraid of violence. He doesn't shy away from things like that. And so that sort of stuff is just so fun to write because it's so far from you know who you are in real life. And you're just sort of living vicariously like, oh, what I would like to do to my enemies, Falcon can just go do. Um, so that's that's really fun. He's really fun to write in. And um, and I think Hart is another character who is a soldier. And I had a lot of friends in the military when I was growing up who are not necessarily an amalgamation of Hart, but it was fun to, to use some past experiences to um, bring him to life. Like he's this very... Um, walled off, broody, serious guy for a reason. Um, and so his points of view are always a little bit sharp and sassy and, and really fun to write too. You said that this, when you first started writing um, after your journalism, of course, that this was your second book that you decided to publish, not the first one that you had written? It is. It's my second. Are you planning on going back to that first one? I am. Once I get through Ophelia's core story, I'm going to map out the next couple of years of projects. And I have another book that is captivating my attention that I've sort of started a couple chapters on. Um, but then I have this, the first book that I ever wrote that I taught myself, you know, the book that you teach yourself how to finish a book on, um, that has been professionally edited. And I mean, it was ready to publish if I wanted to. I actually queried that book with literary agents for about six months before I just got swept into every dark shadow and decided I wanted to spend my time writing and not querying. Um, so yeah, the plan is to go back to that first book and look at it with some fresh eyes and, you know, having worked, worked on my craft a little bit to see, you know, is this really ready or is this something I'd like to revise again and put out there? So and is it in the same world or is this a new world for you? It's a whole new world. And it's, it's um, well, I would say upper YA urban fantasy and it's called Wicked Glimpses. And it does have elements of time travel because that's something that I think is kind of consistent in some of my work, but it's much more urban fantasy with vibes of like shadow hunters, um, light, dark magic, but a military academy, that sort of, of feel. So it is a bit different that it's, it's more set in modern day and it's focused with two points of view. So um, the love interests, if you will, a guy and a girl. And yeah, it's, it's, it's got my, it has a lot of my heart because you do build those relationships with your characters. And I spent a year and a half writing that one. It took me longer than writing every dark shadow. So I won't let it sit there forever. I don't think. But you're going to finish every Dark Shadow duology before you go back to that one? I am going to, yeah, because um, the first book, Wicked Glimpses, is meant to be a trilogy, and I don't want to put it out there and then have readers waiting for the subsequent books. I'd like to um, have the second book written before I release the first one of that. And when is your um, Dark, or Dark Wheeler, Wielder, excuse me, Dark Wheeler is the prequel, right? Dark Wilder is the prequel, and it will be coming out January 8th. 
And do we have a title for book two? We do not have a title for book two. It's the last thing I do. That's um, That was my process for book one is I like to just, I like to write the whole book and then I sit down and brainstorm and it's again, more pressure because it has to feel like a family with this book. And I like to also put it to the readers. Last time I gave them a couple choices and I did a contest on Instagram and had them weigh in on the, on the title um, just to make the community feel part of it. And that was fun too. That's awesome. I've never heard of an author doing that before, but that's such a good idea for bringing the community in. Yeah, I think it's fun. And um, I usually do it before I have the final edit of the book so that I like to go back and, you know, work the title in somewhere. It's always like a little Easter egg people can find. It's kind of fun. What were some other contenders that your book was almost called? Oh my gosh. You know what? I don't even know if I still have the list of all of the (laughs) names. Like I would love to give you, there were a lot, there were like 30 different, really some that were just really Mm -hmm. terrible. Um, But the two that I had, so Every Dark Shadow was number one and Whispers of Dust and Darkness was the second title. And then after everyone voted, Every Dark Shadow was kind of, it was the winner and it was kind of the one I was leaning toward as well. But I thought, you know, this, the series needs a title and it felt like whispers of dust and darkness was so fitting. Um, for if, if you've read the book, like it's really fitting for what's going on with Ophelia and where the books book two is going. So then that it became the series title. But you, so you still got to use both because you got the series title and the book title. I think that's really fitting for two great titles too. <laughs> I feel like I cheated, but <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. Like I said, there's no rules here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Make our own rules. <laughs> um, was there any information that you had to, like, research to help you write this book to kind of learn something about a character that you're not in real life, that you had to mm-hmm. find them through research? Oh, my God, so much. Like setting as well as characters I would say like getting it was really fascinating I'm a really really visual writer I like to write with opening images and um just really setting the scene in the mood for the reader to be immersed and so Pinterest I have Pinterest boards for the book and it was a lot of like reading old articles from the late 1800s New York and looking at like handwriting back then and carriages like literally studying the wheels on carriages um in the inside of carriages and what would the material have been made of and did they make five like five paned window carriages like who would have driven them um and then as far as like the characters I think some of what they can do like there was a lot of like theoretical magic research like the character has this type of magic you know what are some things that they could do with it and um just to get ideas for how to make it make it their own and researching like you know if that when Ophelia has this scene where she's throwing knives at a tree and trying to remember that she can wield them and that she's good with knives and I'm like okay so how would you hold a knife like how would your footwork be like if you were this many pieces from a tree would you hold the knife by the handle or by the blade to throw so it was just it's a lot of those like really technical choreograph choreography stuff I think to make things real was there anything that you had to Google that you thought for sure FBI was going to knock on your door? 
I mean, all the time. Like, you know, there's a scene with Falcon in the underbelly where he is on a job for one of the bosses and he needs to bring them a trophy, which is an appendage, basically. And um, things go down and an appendage is lost, a couple of them, through certain means. And so, yeah, you're you're Googling things like, you know, how much blood can someone lose? And like, you know, if you... If you if you ripped this potential this appendage off, like you know, what would that look like, or what would that, you know? It's just like to that level, wanting to make it believable. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's just one, but like this goes on for like eight months. There's so many other examples of of research that you're doing, like you know, how far can people fall without dying, and um, you know, like contusions, right? Like looking up like what bruises look like. And then I'll get on Pinterest, if I'm looking for imagery like that, they'll be like, if you need help, call this number. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Or like if you're just looking for like darker imagery for inspiration, Pinterest thinks that you need to talk to a therapist. So I'm a writer. That's interesting. Like, I don't think I've ever got one of those posts from Pinterest. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. No, 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 no. I think it's fantastic. But obviously, you know, if you do need help, like, <laughs> get right, it. But, right. um, I'm just here for research. I promise that's it. Yeah. Did any of the research put you in a darker mood at all that you had to kind of take a break and step away? Yes. Um, I think towards like the holidays last year, I had to pull back from finishing the book. I was... Um, I think I was around like 80% of the way finished getting to the climax scenes where there was going to be a lot of reveals, a lot of um, death and violence and letting characters go. Um, And so that was really hard to do over the holidays. And I just found myself not able to do it. I was trading, trading pages with critique partners and I just said, I need, I need it until end of January. I need an extension. Um, And it was a lot easier just taking a couple of weeks off to come back fresh. And yeah, you have to really like let yourself go to these places. I feel like to be able to do the story justice. And I imagine it's like anybody in a different creative profession, like acting where you're putting so much of your headspace into their headspace and it does take a toll for sure. Yeah. I, I can imagine that trying to connect with your characters on such a deep personal level that, their depressions do become your depressions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think with some of them in particular, like, it's really easy on first draft, if you don't, if you don't want to be bogged down by the, the emotional weight, to just get the story down. But when you go back through, and you're putting all the layers in, and you're putting like the true meat of the story on the bones, um, that's where I think it starts, it gets heavy sometimes. And so, like I said, I'm a mood writer. So sometimes when I'm doing edits, I will, I will tackle all the things that I can do mentally first. And I will really gear myself up for those harder scenes to do them justice. That definitely makes sense. I love it. What are you currently reading? I am the worst with TBRs. I have a stack of literally 10 books on my nightstand by my bed because like I said, mood reader, um, mm-hmm. so I have started reading all of them and one of them is Divine Rivals. 
I really love. I was in the mood for Rivals to Lovers story where it's a bit more focused on two people. I'm writing multiple point of views where you're like whittling down the love interests as you go. Um, so that's kind of a headspace that's helpful for me to get into. And then I'm reading some great so far reads by some indie authors. Um, I just picked up Logan Carley's Dream by the Shadows and Arm Gray's Nightweaver and Noelle Rain's um, third book in her Empress series, Empress of, look and see what the third book is called, um, Empress of Earth and Darkness. And so that last one's a romanticy, um, Arm Gray's, feels to me so far like a, like a fantasy adventure, maybe with some darker elements coming. And um, Dream by the Shadows is more gothic fantasy. And so they're all just slightly different moods, but they all have beautiful writing. And um, yeah, so I'm kind of shifting back and forth between those, I'd say, four primary ones. And then I've got some others from like different genres that I like to pick up when I'm just in the mood, like um, Amanda Foodie and C.L. Herman's um, All of Us Villains, which is like a magical Hunger Games, a little bit of a different vibe, still kind of witchy, but kind of mixing genres, I think it's a little bit different. So, yeah. I had one in arc of the second one um, of All of Us Villains from Goodreads, and it was fantastic, but I, my TBR was so long. I was so upset that like it took me so long to read. I'm so impressed by the level and quality of work that's coming out from indie authors that I'm just I'm so excited to see these books get some traction with readers and find their audiences. Um, I mean, because I feel like we all know like there are a lot of the traditionally published books with like huge budgets, right, that we all see um, across Bookstagram and they're amazing books too. But I really, I love supporting authors who don't have budgets that are that big and whose work is just as good. So, great. Yeah, no, most of my, like, favorite books that I found have been independently published. And I think with the kind of blow up that social media had, especially for the book community, indie publishing is a lot more acceptable now. And sometimes arguably better because you can personally connect with your readers that way it's so fun I think that is the number one reason I write like I was telling myself like I I really don't look at book sales I look I just look at like how is the community coming together around the book and I get so like nerded like I nerd out and get so excited to hear people just like no it's team falcon or no it's team heart or you know, just having like these theories about what's happening. And I'm just like, I am like so deliriously happy to see conversation around story because it gives people this shared sense of community and this, just this incredible thing to come together around in a world that feels really hard and really dark sometimes, you know, to feel like you have found your people in your community and social media is a huge part of that. So yeah, I'm really, I'm glad it's there. I, it's also a big distraction when you're writing a book too. So it's a balance. I think that's what really pulled me into fantasy as an adult reader specifically is just knowing how dark your real world is and how 
so much is happening around you that you just want to like pull yourself out of that. And so you trade real world problems for magic problems. (laughs) And somehow it's better. It just, it helps you escape the realities that, that could be so dark and so dreary. That's so true. And I feel like they help even process what's going on in the world sometimes. I'll find definitely find that too. I find like when I'm reading, sometimes the parallels like are really they're like they're glaring or and sometimes they're more subtle, but I like I close the book feeling like I processed something I didn't know I needed to. Absolutely. So what is the best advice you've received? Or if you were to tell a new writer some piece of advice that you wish you had known sooner, what would that be? Oh my gosh. I think the biggest piece is the world needs your story. Um, it's really easy to compare what you're writing to other people and to see other people's success and feel like you're so behind. But there's a reason the story came to you. And no one else can tell it. And there's a community for what you're working on. Your book doesn't have to be just like the book that's blowing up. You know, it has it has something special to offer. So I think that can be really hard to remember when you're seeing other people have success in whatever you, your age is. You know, if you're in your 40s or in your 20s, sometimes it just feels like you'll either never get there or the time has come and gone and you'll, you know, it's too late. But the truth is, if you're if you're writing because you love to do it, just keep writing because you love to do it and everything else will fall into place as it's meant to. So sweet. I love that. It made my heart feel so good. (laughs) All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I am really looking forward to picking up your book. I'm definitely going to have to do that. Um, Where can we find you online? Where can we buy your books? I'm on most of the social channels as author Sarah Zim. And you can find Every Dark Shadow on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org. If you are like me and love to support indie bookstores, um, that's a great one. And it's also in Kindle Unlimited now. So if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read the book for free or you can purchase it, whatever device you use it on. So Dark Wielder will be coming out um, as an ebook, And then there is going to be a special edition of Every Dark Shadow coming out in January 2024. It's going to be uh, full of character art, and it is going to be the only place that you will be able to get Dark Wielder in print format. It will be in the back of book one. That is fantastic. Oh my goodness. I'm definitely going to wait for that. Wonderful. I'm going to keep an eye out for that for sure. I love character art. Awesome. Oh my gosh. So excited for that. So I will definitely be pre-ordering that day one. (laughs) Thank you. Anything else that you'd like to share before I let you go? No, it was such a pleasure. I wish the podcast all the luck and it's just so exciting. Thank Thank you for supporting indie authors. Oh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. And I'm so excited and good luck with book two and everything else that you're working on. I'm really excited to see your your career unfold. Yay. Thank you so much, Brianna. Take care. (laughs) Thanks. Well, you too. Bye-bye. That is all the time we have for today, but thank you guys so much for hanging out. I hope you guys had a blast and we will see you next week right here on Tea and Tropes. Bye.